Hello, welcome to the Tech for Good podcast. We are very passionate about two things, technology and our world. In each pod, we will be interviewing some fascinating people, business leaders, but those with a special interest in solving the biggest issues facing humanity today. Think the environment, think healthcare provision during a pandemic, think global social injustice. If you want to know more about technology's immense potential to fix and transform, then you're in the right place. In this episode, I speak to Tim Barker. Tim is CEO of Couth, one of the UK's leading providers of digital mental health care. Since the onset of the pandemic, more and more people are using online mental health support services. In the interview, Tim talks about Couth's philosophy and what makes its platform unique, and I get his thoughts on how data and AI will improve provision in the years to come. But first, I ask Tim about the effect COVID-19 has had on an already significant healthcare challenge. Mental health seems to have, over the last 18 months, really become a mainstream media topic partly because all of us in some way have suffered or struggled in our own lives, families, or in our own lockdown. But looking at the numbers of it, I mean, pre-pandemic, one in five of the population every year has a need for mental health support. The Centre for Mental Health estimated in sort of end of last year that an additional 10 million people in England alone would need support. And what we see in our own service over the last sort of 12 to 18 months is an 89% increase in adults seeking support, some issues around like depression or hopelessness up nearly 40%, suicidal ideation up nearly 40%, and some specific um, challenges like eating disorders up around 70%. And so through our data, we can see effectively the impact that COVID has had on the mental health of the nation, not just nationally, but also regionally. So we can identify kind of hotspot issues that they are. And I think now that we now that we're coming out of hopefully this horrific chapter and into the you know next change curve, I think the big question that everyone's got is well, what does the recovery look like? You're replacing isolation anxiety with workers' return anxiety. You know there is a um, this is going to be living with us for some time, and, and my job here is to make sure that it's not generation COVID that we're dealing with uh, as part of the aftermath in terms of mental health. Yeah, and we'll talk about Couth in a minute, Tim. But do you feel like, you know, some of those numbers there you shared are, are stark, aren't they? And they, they really make you kind of sit up and take notice. Do you feel like the subject is being spoken about enough as we kind of enter the post-pandemic era? Because obviously there are many different types of impacts across all sorts of different areas. But the mental health piece, do you think it is being, is there enough discourse? Is it being spoken about enough? Certainly the media has brought it to the foreground in the last 18 months. And it might be one of the beneficiaries here would be that mental health as a topic is something we're all more open to talk about. But if there were one thing I think probably that we just need to get to the next stage on, it's not talking about it as a generic, right, but talking about it in the specific. So whether it be around, you know, returners' anxiety to the office or whether it be around anxiety or uncertainty of the future that people have, I think the label of mental health, the topic of it, over the last decade has really been on the ascendancy. If you look at Gen Z and millennials, 
the younger you know the younger you are, the more open you are about talking about it i think just for now it's trying to now get into more specifics of what kind of challenges the population and people face whether it be you know bodies dysmorphia that is really driven by social media beautification or, or something else but i feel that we are all as leaders as well and when i talk to ceos much more attuned to this being a topic that we as leaders need to now start to focus on and provide support for our employees for and that we have a duty of care that perhaps didn't exist in past generations of the office now tim we're going to talk about how technology and digital tools can can maybe help and 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 play their role in in advancing this discussion about mental health in the future tell us about your company tell us what Kuth does Kuth is the, one of the largest digital mental health platforms in the country. We're over 20 years old. And um, in that time, we've really grown now um, in partnership with the NHS to provide our service, which started for young people, so 10 to 25-year-olds. That's near nationwide now across England and expanding into Wales and Scotland. Um, we're also now you know, focused on how we can support adults and businesses to really help you know, normalize the topic of mental health. And, and obviously, our specific focus is providing early help. The earlier you can support someone, the easier it is. And so that's a big part of what we do. And probably if you think of your own life, right at that early stage of health, there's very little, right? You might go to your GP, you might read some information, but actually getting professional support early, there's a real uh, lack of support there. And that's really our focus is to provide early help, both through self-help and professional help. How does the service work then, Tim? What's the experience like for a user? Sure. So what we've learned in our time is there were really three things that underpin our philosophy around Kuth. The first one is to make it accessible. So when we partner with the NHS, we'll make it free at the point of use for everyone. The second one is to really make sure that it removes stigma. So when you sign up, it's an anonymous service. You make up a username, but it's not tied to your email address or phone number. So that just removes the stigma. And the third one is that there is no one size fits all. And so different people will benefit from different kinds of support. So that way we offer um, you know, content that our own community members or our, our clinical team create. Um, we have a community where you can post and hear from others that have been where you are. Um, everything's what we call pre-moderated to make sure it's a safe and supportive place. It's like the version of Facebook that you wish existed. And then we provide over 20,000 hours of live text chat based counselling because increasingly, you know, we're all trained and tuned to DMing and IMing people. And so that's a really convenient way to interact rather than jumping on a Zoom or having to make a phone call. And especially for younger people, like making a phone call to a stranger is something that just doesn't happen anymore. So we provide this platform of choice, um, which means that it's a safe space for you to interact. We helped about 200,000 people last year across the UK. And I'll talk perhaps later, but you know, a big part of where we're going is to look at how we can use exciting technology to AI and machine learning to help recommend to people what kind of things may be most beneficial to them based on how we've helped people that are similar to them. Hello, I'm Daniel Brigham, editor of Tech for Good magazine. 
I hope you're enjoying this podcast, and if you want more, you can head over to techforgood.net for some compelling and thought-provoking stories. From high-tech insect farms that could solve world hunger, to a global mission to counter the spread of COVID-19 disinformation, we've got Tech for Good covered. You can read and subscribe at techforgood.net. stuff Tim and in terms of the feedback you get from your users obviously been, the company's been around for 20 years you must have a lot of you know feedback and data that you you've gathered over that time what what is it about the platform do you think that really has made it a success yeah I think when you look at the data and the um you know the the uh, our net promoter score 94 percent of people that use tooth would recommend it to someone else I think it's because there's very few places where you could go and be heard in a safe space, not be judged, get professional support straight away. That's quite um, an unusual combination of things that we provide. And we've been doing this for 20 years. We understand, we know the kind of challenges that exist out there that people have. And I think partly people think that they're not alone, they're part of a supportive community. Um, you know, you see that reflected in the fact that half the people that contribute to the community go on and or use it go on and help someone else so there's a really nice community feel there that people have literally grown up with cooth and they then paid it backwards and supported others yeah and we've mentioned it already but here in the uk you, you have a, a strong partnership with the national health service here do you want to talk a bit about how that relationship works yeah the nhs was a as an unknown to me prior to joining cooth which i did a couple of years ago it's something that as an entrepreneur, I perhaps tried to avoid rather than get into because, um, you know, they are a conservative buyer. But in the last few years, I think, especially with mental health, they've really recognised the role that digital can play. And you've seen that reflected in, you know, the growth of Cooth over the last few years. The way that the NHS works, though, is, you know, all decision making is devolved down to different regions. So there's 135 different regions that in England they're called clinical commissioning groups they're called health boards in uh, in Wales for example um, and and they get to choose what services they want they should be providing to their local population today uh, in England over 90 percent of those um, commissioners contract us to support their young people uh, that includes in all of London so uh, those 32 every borough in London it gets to contract directly with services that will be valuable and all of those now um, contract cooth for their population, which means that for us, we can then also have an economy of scale in how we promote and make sure that people know that this free service is available um, to uh, to the whole population. Um, so they're very, you know, they're a um, they're a buyer that uh, I'll probably use the wrong word calling them a buyer. They're a partner really that we work with. Well, for twenty years really, first in terms of piloting cooth, proving it identifying how we measure the value to our, our commissioners. And, and it's really been a, a mutual journey where we've both learned about how can we make these kind of services effective and available at scale. And of course, the NHS is business model, if you like, is around free at the point of use, which for us means that there's no paywalls or usage limits. You know, we're not a direct, although we're a direct to consumer service in a way, we're free to that consumer. And so what I really like about what we do is our business model is really aligned to the people that pay for our service in the NHS. It's really aligned to the people that use our service. And, you know, we because we all want the same outcomes. 
ultimately we're here to support the whole population and really get as far as we can to that one in five of the population that has a need for a service like Keith. And Tim, do you think that approach is what makes you stand out? Because, you know, over the last few years, certainly there have been a lot of competitors, I'm sure, emerge on the market, many of whom perhaps offer a subscription model and and maybe slightly different services. But there is a lot of competition, I'm sure. Do you think the fact that it's free at the point of access and, and it offers that anonymity to users, are they the kind of things that really have given you your position in the market, would you say? Yeah, I, I think probably it's also... I'd agree with with that exactly. I think probably it's also this emphasis on early intervention. You know, if people are calling, you know, um, a helpline to get support, or they're even calling their private medical insurance because they're at the point of crisis, you're too late then. And so it's a, it's akin to, you know, we want to offer a gym, not a hospital. We want to help build resilience in the population and build mentally healthy populations not just be the place that catches people when they really are struggling or suffering. So I think it's that spectrum that we support, which is also important of that very, you know, from well-being to kind of early help for people that really need professional support. There's a lot, a growing number of apps out there. Very few of them actually will connect you to a human that can help you because app store downloads can scale so much quicker if you're just watching videos and reading articles. But we think really to tackle this, you need to get access with one click to someone who's a professional that can support you. Um, and you can't solve everything with meditation, unfortunately. Yeah. Now, Tim, we're going to talk in a bit about how the technologies you mentioned earlier are going to steer this industry into the future and the impact things like artificial intelligence might have. But next, I want to I learned a bit more about you. Maybe you can share with the listener a bit about your own career because you've not worked in healthcare all of your career. You're a technologist. Tell, tell us about your career. My journey is one that probably my career advisor back in the day would not have preordained for me. So I am, um, well, I'm in my early 50s. I was a passionate computer gamer and computer programmer back in the day. But in those days, I'm talking 8-bit computers. So I did a degree in computer science, followed my passion, and then went on really a 30-year journey, both as a developer, then as a product manager, and then as an entrepreneur. I've started two businesses and sold two businesses. Um, then I moved into product marketing and in marketing and eventually into a CEO world. But I suppose I'd call myself a product-centric CEO if I had to label myself, because at my heart, I'm still a builder. I really enjoy innovation, building, pioneering, and really trailblazing in, in new things. But that did give me um, a good experience and exposure to both the world of a developer, the, wor the world of marketing, the world of com commercial like company and product building. And you're right, I'm not from the health tech background. I spent the last chapter of my career, the last eight years, really focused on building data platforms using natural language processing and AI and partnering with social networks like LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter to help them essentially understand their users better. Um, and so I really looking at Cuth about two years ago, wanted to focus on something where I could spend the next chapter and decade of my career and really focus on something I really could wake up every day and feel great about um, focusing on building. And, you know, Cuth's got a great social purpose. I feel like on even a bad day, you've helped someone um, in a good way. And so it's a win-win.
Do you want to keep up to date with the latest in enterprise, technology, and digital transformation? Visit digitalbulletin.com for news, long reads, thought leadership, and so much more. That's digitalbulletin.com. What difference does that does that make, Tim, at this point in your career to be able to be invested in something that, as you said, there is is making a real difference to people's lives? Well, you know, they do say that you should divide your career into thirds. You know, you learn, you earn, and then you return. I certainly didn't do enough of the former, earning and learning. So I need to make it up on returning, really. But I think all of us want to invest our times in things that make impact and have purpose. That I, and that's not to say that building, I don't know, a marketing technology platform doesn't have value and would be valued by someone. But it's something that each of us individually, personally, has to really think about where they want to invest their time. And as I've got older, you realize that that is the one thing you cannot get back. So spend your time wisely on problems that you are passionate about. And I think for me, while I can't, what I don't bring deep domain expertise in, in as a, I'm not a, you know, psychologist or a mental health um, practitioner, but a lot of this goes back to pattern matching of what you've seen in the past. What I've seen in the past, the use of data, insights, AI, to help like uncover, connect the dots, those kinds of things, and how you can utilize those either, A, to keep people safe, so you can identify people that might be in distress based on their behavior in the service, or B, start to use recommendation and personalization to provide the kind of support, support that people need faster by understanding what their needs are, what their behavior is, and how other people like them have got support in the past. And let's talk about those those technologies now, Tim. Where do you think we're at on the journey with the likes of AI and, and the use of data in mental health support specifically? Do you think we are kind of anywhere near the potential of, of what we could offer here? I think we're at the foothills of a huge data mounting now. And partly one of the challenges for providers out there is there is they don't have an abundance of data. It's only over the last few years that a lot of these services have come to come to market. Now I, I'm you know, I'm hugely beneficial of it. We've got a decade plus worth of data. So, um, but we are using it quite sparsely today. I mean, if I look at the kind of conversations I typically have, the question I get asked most is, are we going to see chatbot therapists? Right? Is that going to be the next stage of this? And I don't want to disappoint anyone, but the answer is no. There are, there are technology companies out there trying to provide those kind of services. But if you think of the act of getting therapy or counselling, it's a very human to human interaction. Getting listened to, getting validated and getting individual support is a very personal thing. Also, for those of us that have used chatbots, they can't even figure out your order status for something you bought online. So it is probably one of the biggest technology leaps to imagine that that's going to be a chatbot therapist in your future. But the, the kind of thing it can be is the future of mental health tech and mental health support should look like Netflix. It should be based on what you want and what you need, how others have, what others have found helpful in the past, and then it can be recommending to you. And that's one of the challenges that we have. We provide a, an abundance of choice, but choice in our service is like having the world's most massive TV guide 
there's 100,000 articles in our service, community posts, different activities. So you need to do what Netflix does, which is you need to bring and bring that to the individual and personalize it to their context um, without losing the human elements of that. So I think the, the optimistic thing here is that those technologies, recommendation, personalization, are very well battle tested, very well understood. So we don't need to innovate with algorithms to be able to deliver the future. We just innovate with the data that we hold and, and in part of that, and then make sure that we are providing and capturing feedback loops, which will really identify whether something's valuable or not. Are you happy then, Tim, that Kuth is, is on that roadmap? You're, you're doing these things and, and the future is looking bright for your company specifically. Like maybe tell us a bit about what, what you guys are doing to, to sort of ready yourself for that future. Yeah, so we are, well, there's so many things. There's probably three parts to it. There's, there's talent, there's teams and there's culture. Um, because it actually requires a shift in culture. Uh, it needs it needs a whole organization to become more data informed, not not data driven. We're not gonna, you know, remove our judgment from this, but really a lot more data informed. So there's one part of that which is bringing everyone up into the organization up to a level of capability to be able to look at and access data. Because we also we already use data across the business, for example, our content team will look at the kind of issues that people are struggling with every day in the service to identify what kind of content to create. That's at the easy end of the data spectrum, but so valuable to be able to do that. Through to the more advanced end, which is looking at essentially how different cohorts interact. You know, young black males, for some reason, prefer to engage with the community as opposed to engaging with a counsellor. So then you start to think about what can you recommend to people um, that, about what kind of support might be more beneficial to them. So I would say we are, we're starting to climb the mountain. We've got a data, data science team. Um, we've got a technology and product team that is increasingly designing, building our data infrastructure to enable the next stage for us, which is really around personalization. Um, but it is a, it's a quite a long journey because also proving these algorithms is quite challenging when you are providing a clinical service so you also then need to innovate and create entirely new outcome and feedback measures so it's a kind of number of things that we've got to bring together in concert to both provide things like personalization and then have the right way to capture feedback to know if they're valuable to people in the short term and then in the long term yep brilliant stuff um Tim, I want to I want to ask you though, what what do you think if you could pick one one single challenge that is kind of in your way at the bottom of this mountain? What, what do you think the biggest challenge still remains to be in in solving this problem? That's a really good question. I'm just having to think about that. <laughs> I think the biggest challenge I think we've got there is in a traditional tech sense where you move to use the Zuckerberg vernacular, you move fast and break things. We cannot afford to do that. Yeah. We're dealing with people's lives here. So I think the biggest challenge that we face, maybe that anyone faces in the health care sector, is how do you innovate and iterate safely, right? So that you are essentially, you've always got a route to engage an individual, regardless of what experiment uh, you might be putting them through to really determine what is most valuable to them. No, really interesting. And, and ultimately, Tim, on a final point, are you an optimist about the future of mental health services? Do you believe that one day, however far away that might be, 
that people suffering from mental health problems will have access to the support and services that they need? Ben, I wouldn't be here unless I was an incredible optimist about that. What really excites me, and again, it's a lot of this is around connecting the dots from my previous, you know, chapters in my career. There's a huge opportunity to, at some point, start to determine when people turn a, a curve and they start to need support and to intervene and provide that coaching or counselling, because those are two ends of the same spectrum that people respond to, uh, to provide that early. And so I think that sort of connected data set with consent around it that can help people early is ultimately where I'm really fascinated about going. Because today we're a service available to anyone that wants to seek help. But the more that we can identify that people might just need a little nudge, need some support, that could be a real game changer. That was the Tech for Good podcast. Listen, subscribe and rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Thank you.